the final chapter of this great letter to the Corinthians. So I want to begin this final message in our series, Everyday Discipleship. That's been our theme. Um, And of course, 1 Corinthians has been our text. So I want to begin with something I said in the very first teaching as we started our journey here. And, and I want to do this because this is kind of, it will kind of give us a, um, an overview of where we've been. So I said this, what the epistle to the Romans was to the church in 16th century Europe, 1 Corinthians is to the 21st century church in the West. Now, 16th century Europe, that was the time of the Reformation. So the Reformation was when the the church came alive once again to the Bible and once again to the truth of the gospel. And the, the letter of Paul to the Romans was the key text that brought about the Reformation. And so that's what I mean when I say what Romans was to 16th century Europe. First Corinthians is to 21st century Western culture. So in other words, just like Romans was the perfect and appropriate and applicable word for the time, so First Corinthians is that for us today. Western culture is rapidly sliding back into its pre-Christian spiritual and moral condition And as a result, the church finds itself not only living in a largely paganized culture, but being infiltrated by that culture. So much of what we are seeing in the culture is addressed right here in this letter. Exaltation of human wisdom, personality cults, division, sexual dysfunction and disorientation, confusion about life, confusion about our bodies, confusion about marriage and singleness, about worship, the supernatural, confusion about life beyond the grave and more. All of these things have been covered by us as we've made this journey. So here in Paul's closing words to these Corinthian Christians, he addresses a number of things that were pertinent to them at the time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through and we're going to look at some of those things because even though they related primarily to them there in Corinth in the first century, there's some principle that, that overlaps with us that we can draw from. But the main focus today is going to be verse 13. Now, verse 13 is one of those exhortation, encouragement statements that Paul makes to the Corinthians, but obviously it's much broader. It's to all Christians as well. So that's the way we want to approach things here today. So starting with verses one through four, Paul here talks about the collection. So now about the collection for the Lord's people. Now here's the background. The church in Jerusalem has fallen upon hard times. Remember, everything started in Jerusalem, right? That was, that was ground zero for the gospel. That's where it all started. But now many years have passed, and the church in uh, Jerusalem has gone through difficulty, falling upon hard times, and they're in need. 
So Paul, of course, he loves the church in Jerusalem. Paul's Jewish, and um, he wants to see God work among the Jews. So, so he says to the Gentile churches, he says, hey, the, the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are in desperate need. Let's, let's give something to them. Let's give them a gift. And so the churches said, yes, amen. We want to be part of that. We, uh, we want to make a contribution to this gift that's going to go to the church in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians were right there with the other churches on that. So now Paul is talking about that. He's giving them instruction. And he says this, on the first day of the week, or the first day of every week, uh, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem if it seems advisable for me to go also, uh, I will, I will go. So just notice a couple things. Paul says, um, I want you to lay aside something every first day of the week. Why did Paul say the first day of the week? Because that's the day the church gathered. That's today. Sundays are the first day of the week. So Paul says, um, I don't want there to be a big, push for this gift when I get there. I want you guys to you know, faithfully and just consistently do this regularly so when I come, the gift is there. So as we follow the story throughout the New Testament, Paul takes this gift to Jerusalem. And so they came through, but not before they tried to renege on their commitment. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul has to address that with them. Now, he says, look, you, you made a promise, you made a pledge, you said you were going to give this, and he said, you really need to be faithful, you really need to keep your commitment. Um, he said, because, you know, if, if I have to go to Jerusalem and say, I, you know, told them in advance what you had promised, but now have to say, oh, they changed their mind, Paul said, that's going to be embarrassing for me, it's going to be embarrassing for you as well. And so, and then he reminds them of some real important principles in giving. He said, remember this, that if we sow sparingly, Paul's using a, a metaphor from agriculture, if we plant a few seeds, we're just going to get a small crop. But if we plant a lot of seeds, we'll get a larger crop. So he's applying that to giving financially to the church in Jerusalem. And then he, he wraps all of that encouragement up by saying this, Remember this, that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. And so that's how Paul ends up finally you know, exhorting them to follow through. They do follow through. Paul takes the gift to Jerusalem. Now, verses five through nine, Paul Again, is talking to them about his intention. He says, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Here's, here's the verse because a great door for effective work has opened to me 
and there are many who oppose. So Paul speaks of this, this great uh, door that is open for him. And there are times when that's what happen, happens. God opens a door. Um, my friend Joel Turner, who I just was with last week. So, you know, they're up in Canada. They've got their own COVID issues and all of that sort of stuff. They've had to go through all kinds of um, gymnastics like we have as far as, uh, you know, you can have this many people in service. You can't have that many people. Uh, you got to wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask. You got to social distance. You don't have to so social distance. They went through all of that stuff. And at one point, their restrictions became so severe in some ways that they could only have 10 people at a church service. <laughs> yes, that's right. So we didn't have it that bad. <laughs> only 10 people. So, of course, a lot of people just said, all right, that's it. We're shutting down. Why do 10 people? Well, Joel, being the creative guy that he is, he said, no, 10 people. If we do 10 services on a Sunday, we can have 100 people. We're going to do 10 services on a Sunday. <laughs> so he did 10 services for several weeks. And right at the end, he was telling me, he said, on this one Sunday, he just said to the Lord, Lord, I don't think I can do another Sunday with 10 services. And that very next day, the, the restrictions uh, were, were eased up on. So he made it through this time. But here's my point. My point is, during this time, actually many churches in the community shut down and have never opened up again yet to this day. And because of what Joel did, this, this was... For a lot of people, it's like, wow, this guy's serious about his faith. I mean, he's preaching 10 times on a Sunday. So this, this sparked the interest on the part of people, and they decided to come out and see, well, what's going on? That people would, would you know, put forth that, that much effort. And what's happened up in Canada is a great opportunity has arisen. And so I was there last Sunday sharing with uh, his congregation. In this process, they started a satellite church about a half an hour away. And I met a number of people that have come to faith in the last month. They've just become Christians. And it's been all of the upheaval and all the craziness in the world and all that's gone on with COVID. This has impacted people to the point that they want to find out more about life. Like, what, what is going on? And, uh, you know, how do we navigate this? And what about the future? And, and what if I actually did get sick and die and all of that? So point is, we're living in a strategic time. And Paul, Paul's the kind of guy who's going to seize the moment. Now, in Paul's life, Many of these strategic moments were uncomfortable for him. <laughs> Paul went to prison for his faith, but he saw it as strategic. He saw that God had a purpose in it. So we need to recognize that there is a great door that has opened for us all around the world. 
People all around the world are asking questions that they have not asked in a long time. In some cases, they've never asked. Like, wow, what happens after you die? What if I get sick? What if I lose a loved one? What if I go bankrupt? What if, what, all of these things. So these are opportunities. And this is the moment for the church to seize the opportunity and to bring the good news in the midst of this. Now, Paul says, there are many who oppose me. Whenever God opens a door, the enemy's gonna be right there to try to slam it shut. That is a fact of history. Whenever God is at work, the enemy's also working simultaneously to try to shut down, hinder, impede, uh, you know, somehow minimalize what God wants to do. So we got to recognize that and not, not let the enemy fool us and get us off onto some tangent about something else and to lose sight of the opportunity that God's given. So I think this is just a good reminder for us here in this passage. Now, in um, verses 10 through 20, Paul, uh, he, he's now going to reference a number of his friends and co-workers. Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, uh, Aquila, Priscilla. He mentions um, Achaicus, Fortun Fortunatus here as well. And let me just say this. Paul understood the necessity and the value of partnership in ministry and friendship in life. Paul understood that. Um, you know, sometimes a ministry is focused on one person. We just lived through decades of, of that kind of thing, like, you know, the celebrity pastor, if you will. There's, there's a whole church. There's, in some cases, thousands of people. There's hundreds of people that are involved in the ministry, but the ministry is identified with one person. Now, Paul, he was that guy in a sense. He was that one guy, the apostle Paul, who was doing so much, but he always wanted everybody to know that he did not do what he did alone. He always did this with a team. He always did this with people alongside him, helping him, uh, working together with him. He wanted everybody to know that this isn't a one-man show. This isn't a one-man job. This is a team effort. And I think we've talked about that throughout the course of our series here. Um, you know, the team is the way to go. God gives different giftings to different people, and we are all working together in this. I thank God after so many years of being here. I've been at this church 21 years now. Um, that's a long time. And um, of course, I've been leading it as the senior pastor over the last eight years. And I feel like we really have, we've always had lots of great team members. But I feel like right now we have a unique situation where it's like all the right pieces have come together and we got the right team. We're on the same page and we're going in the same direction. And, and I'm so excited about that. I love this aspect of the ministry. I love the team thing. And that is, as we can see here, 
It's a very biblical situation. Now, I'm just going to say one thing. Merlene was up here, and she was talking about children's ministry, and she was pleading for an increase in her team. Her team needs some more players. And so I want to challenge you to get on the team. Get involved. You, you can't imagine the blessing of investing in the lives of God's kids. It's an absolute blessing. You will love it. You might say, oh, I don't, I don't think I can do it. I've never done it. It's okay. Like she said, we'll train you. We'll help you. It, you can do it. God will be with you. He will bless you. So I expect 19 of you to go out and sign up after this service because only one signed up after first service and I didn't give this very compelling uh, exhortation first service. No, seriously, we need more team players. We want to open up more. We want to provide more for the kids. We want people to be able to come and participate and their children to have something that's going to be a blessing to them as well. So I'm going to just leave you with that. So here we go. Paul's final word, and that's verse 13. So look at verse 13. He says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. So this is... Um, you see, this is the broad, this is the general word. Now, it's interesting when you think about um, the letter itself. The whole letter, through most of the letter, Paul's tone is one of correcting the Corinthians. He commends them in the very first part of the epistle, um, but, the, but the body of the letter is corrective. And at certain points, he's being very firm with them. But now here at the end, Twice here at the end, he gives these words of encouragement. Remember verse 58, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And now he just comes right back in the middle of talking about his partners and his co-workers He just comes with this word of encouragement, be on your guard. Why does Paul say that? Be on your guard. Living the Christian life involves conflict with evil forces that are always trying to trip us up and ensnare us in sin. We are in a battle. We're in a battle. The Christian life is, it's a dangerous life. And all of history shows that. And Jesus told us about it. He warned his followers that in the world, you're gonna have trouble. You're gonna have conflict. You're gonna have battles. But he did say, take heart because I've overcome the world. But then when we look at the early uh, history of the church, when we look at what we see in the book of Acts and we see God moving and we see the spirit being poured out and we see thousands coming to faith, we also see that there is opposition. We also see that the enemy is at work trying to trip them up. This is a reality. 
Peter says the same thing Paul does here, but he elaborates a bit more on why we need to be on our guard. He said it this way. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's why we need to be on our guard. We have an adversary. We have an enemy. And this enemy is proactive. He's not passive. He's not just lying around hoping that some misfortune will come along that he can capitalize on. No, he is actively at work trying to trip us up. The devil is a real foe, and he's working, and he's maybe working overtime these days. Now, we have a three-pronged attack against us. We have the world. The world is the system that is against Christ. That's the system of the world. The world system is doing its best to keep Christ out of the minds and obviously the hearts of people, and at the same time, doing its best to corrupt the world with the things that God would forbid. So that, that's the world. And then we talked about the devil. There's the devil. He's a, re, he's a real being, powerful, spiritual being who is working against us. But then our, th- our third enemy, and this is maybe the worst one, actually resides within us. It's ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. It's called the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil, (coughs) these are the forces that Paul is saying, be on your guard against. Be on your guard against these things. And (coughs) I do believe that although the world and the devil pose a a great threat, the flesh is uh, the greatest of the threats. These are the the angles that the enemy is going to come from, the world, the flesh, and the devil. There was a book written some years ago by a, a man named Paul David Tripp, and the book was called Dangerous Calling, and it was a book about pastoral ministry, and it was a book where he was instructing, helping, warning, sharing from his own experiences to pastors and leaders, hey, we need to be careful. We need to watch out. We've got an enemy um, around us in the world. We've got an enemy after us in the devil. We've got an enemy inside of us with our flesh. And it it was a good book. The, The back cover of the book, as do so many books, had a series of different pastors, well-known pastors around the country who endorsed the book. Here's the irony. As the years went by, those men who endorsed the book, the majority of them on that list, all fell victim to the things he warned about in the book and have been removed from ministry. Man, talk about a prophetic book. Dangerous calling, yes, it is dangerous calling. 
but not just for pastors. It's a dangerous calling for all of us because the enemy is looking to, as I said, he's looking to trip us up. He's looking to ensnare us in sin. He's looking to stop us from experiencing the deep, deep relationship that God desires to have with us, and also he wants to stop us from making any progress for the kingdom. So be on your guard. And then he goes on and he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. It seems that every time we turn around, we are hearing about someone deconstructing their faith. How many have, have heard that term, deconstruction? You heard that term, deconstructing the faith? Um, this, this is like, um, it's kind of sweeping through the, the evangelical church right now. And I, I get that not everybody's heard it because not everybody is paying all that close attention to what's happening in the church world and so forth. But um, to deconstruct your faith means just what it sounds like. It means to dismantle it. And, and this is happening uh, over and over again. People who were once well-known Christians are now saying they no longer believe in God, they no longer believe in Jesus, they no longer believe in the Bible. And of course, people in the media are capitalizing on that and saying, hey, look, you know, you're great Christian leaders. This guy doesn't even believe anymore. This guy says that the Bible isn't true. And this guy says that Jesus probably didn't rise from the dead. And so they're publicly deconstructing, and the people who are deconstructing are actually also now becoming evangelists for deconstruction. Oh, yeah, I used to believe what you believed. I thought all of that was true. I don't believe any of that anymore. You should follow me, and I'll tell you all the reasons why it's stupid to be a Christian. And, and so this, this is happening. This is happening with, um, most notably, it's happening with people who have been identified as Christian celebrities. Now, Christian celebrity is kind of a problematic term in the first place, if you think about it. Jesus, who is the Lord of the universe, says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. But, you know, there's a lot of people in the church world who have uh, their ministry has become a platform to promote them. And ironically, quite interestingly, I think, these are, these are many who are publicly deconstructing their faith. Now, why are people deconstructing? Well, some are deconstructing simply because they're looking for reasons to justify their sin and to leave the faith. That, that's what's happening with some. And, you know, you re I, I read these stories, I hear these testimonies, and, you know, somebody's like, you know, I grew up in this home, my parents were so strict, you know, I couldn't watch Harry Potter, and, you know, we never got to have any fun, and had to go to camp and you know, Sunday school, and so I quit. I'm not a Christian anymore. It really, really has nothing to do with the actual faith, but this little seed of doubt comes in, so then they, they just feel like, well, I can question everything because of that. So that, that's what's really happening uh, with some people. But with other people, it is a little more serious. With others, they are deconstructing 
because of abuse that they have seen within the church context, abusive church leadership and hypocrisy. And so maybe they were in a church or a ministry and they really believed their pastor and they believed uh, in the whole vision and program of what God was doing there. And then they find out that for 10 years, their pastor was actually sleeping with a secretary. And they're like, okay, I'm, I'm done, I'm out. And this kind of stuff is happening all over today. There's a lot of this going on. And so people, so this is an opportunity. They're, they're deconstructing. But the interesting thing is they're never deconstructing truly, really over Christian doctrine. It's over the failure of other Christians to live up to Christian doctrine. But because this is in the air, it's just like in some ways, it's, it's kind of like the air we breathe right now. It's almost every week you hear about a new person who says, I, I'm no longer a follower of Jesus. There was a guy who wrote a book when he was young called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Anybody ever read that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye? No. Well, I didn't either. <laughs> but it was a popular book. And, you know, he was like, I don't date, I'm just gonna meet my wife and never gonna kiss her till the wedding day and we're gonna live happily ever after. Um, he recently, he went on from there to become a pastor, pastor at a large church and you know, he went on from there uh, to over the past couple of years, he's just come out and said, I don't, I don't believe that, I'm not a Christian anymore. I, I don't believe in Jesus, I'm not following Jesus. And... And I heard an interview with him the other day that was so interesting because he actually said this. He said, you know, my departure from the faith didn't really have anything to do with Christian doctrine. It had to do with just the world I lived in and what I saw in Christian leaders around me. And for me, that was enough evidence that this can't be real because if it was real, people couldn't live like that. Wow. Now, that doesn't justify him, but I thought it was pretty telling that he actually made the clarification. It's not because of doctrine. Now, some people would say, no, it is because of doctrine. It is because, uh, you know, God doesn't uh, approve of same-sex relationships or because God had uh, the Canaanites slaughtered by the Israelites. I don't believe in that kind of a God. God allowed slavery to happen in America. I don't believe in that. Christians were behind a lot of that. And, and so some, some people are doing it for those reasons. But this is going on. But Paul is saying, stand firm in the faith. So he's telling us to not do that. Don't do what we see people doing around us. How do we prevent from deconstructing? How do we prevent ourselves from falling into this kind of a thing where we would eventually depart from the faith. Number one, stay in your Bible. Stay in the word. You gotta stay in the word and you've gotta understand the word for what it says, not for what sometimes Christians say it says. Because a lot of times people are actually, they're not deconstructing what the scripture says, they're deconstructing the interpretation of their 
church group or denomination or whatever, that's what they're looking at. And they're saying, no, I, I don't believe that. Uh, just, just a quick example. Um, so here's, here's a young guy who goes uh, from a Christian home, and let's say even like homeschooling. Um, so they go from a Christian home, they go from a homeschooling situation, and in their homeschooling, they're taught about creation. Obviously, that's a good thing. And, and, but then they're taught very specific things about creation. They're taught that, um, you know, uh, the world is, is 6,000 years old. It's a young earth, and there's no disputing that. And you've got to believe that to be a Christian. And, you know, a few other things like that. That's what they're taught. And then they go to university, and they get into a science class, and, and all of that's being challenged and so they come to the conclusion, oh, the, the earth must be way older than that. It's got to be millions and millions of years. Um, and, and so then they say, well, I can't be a Christian anymore because if, if, if Christianity teaches that the earth is only 6,000 years old, I can't buy that. Well, listen, Christianity doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach the age of the earth. It doesn't tell us how old the earth is. It never addresses that. Now, we can look at certain things and we can make assumptions. And I happen to actually be a young earth guy. I believe that the earth is young, but I, I don't wanna die on that hill. And I don't think anybody else should wanna die on that hill. And I don't think any young person should be told that unless you believe that, you're not really a Christian. But that's what happened. And that's why some young people are deconstructing. You see, my point is, they're mistaking an interpretation of Scripture for what Scripture actually says or doesn't say. So let's be clear about what it says. So what am I saying to you? I'm saying stay in the Word. But let's make sure it's the Word and not the Word of some guy who says, oh, it's got to be just like this. Hey, it might be like that, but it might not be too, okay? So... Stay in the word. Secondly, stay in fellowship. Don't disconnect from the community. Stay with the people of God. Talk to people. You know, a lot of people have gone through these kinds of things. I went through a season in my life that lasted for years where I was daily deconstructing everything. I remember reading Spurgeon one time. Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher. And somebody was asking him about the philosophy of the day. And, and you know, in Spurgeon's day, Spurgeon and, and uh, Darwin were um, around, relatively around the same time. So Darwinism was really, you know, gaining a foothold in those days. And I remember reading where somebody asked Spurgeon if he was moved by these kinds of things, if that moved his faith at all. And he chuckled and he said, oh, the devil's shown me things that are way more, <laughs> way more problematic than that. No, I'm not phased. And I had a season in my life where I, I questioned everything. But thank God that God's word was there, the people of God were there. And so, listen, if you ever find yourself in a place where you're feeling vulnerable to the philosophies and the ideas and all of the th that, that's, that's swirling around today, uh, get some answers. There are good answers. I, I have yet to hear a question from an atheist or anybody else 
that there hasn't been an answer for. Some answers are fantastic. It's like, oh, man, this is like a slam dunk. This is obvious. Others aren't quite as clear or simple as we would like them, but they are reasonable. And this is what I want you to know. There are good answers, and there's no shame in asking questions. There's no shame. If you come up to me after church and say, you know, Pastor Brian, I don't know. I'm just having a hardest time with... um, you know, something the Bible says about this, or, you know, maybe it's about creation, evolution, or maybe it's about sexuality, or maybe it's about, um, so, you know, something, something like that. You know what we're going to do? We're going to talk about it. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. There's no shame. God invites us to ask questions. Now, again, I've heard the stories of, of, of people who have deconstructed who said, I started to have doubts. I started to worry. I, I wasn't sure if this. And I went to some leadership person in my church, and they said, how horrible of you to think that. Or you're probably not even a Christian. That pushed them right out the door. We can have questions. God is the one who said, come, let us reason together. God likes reasoning, and guess what? He's really reasonable. I've reasoned with God many times. God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know why. And you know, he's never said, Brian, don't ask those questions. He's always helped me work through these things. And that's what, that's what he wants to do. So stay in the word. Stay committed to fellowship get answers. There's no shame. There's plenty of answers out there. Third and fourth, be courageous, be strong. Be courageous. It has always taken courage to follow Jesus, always. If you really follow Jesus, it'll take courage. You can go to church, be part of the church crowd. That doesn't take courage. To follow Jesus, it's always taken courage courage. It still takes courage today. It will certainly take courage tomorrow. Christians have been persecuted from the very beginning. In many cases, they could have been relieved of their sufferings by simply renouncing their faith in Jesus, but they were brave. They were courageous. They didn't back down. And that's what Paul is saying to them. He's saying, be courageous. Cheryl and Jasmine, you know, Cheryl has this, my wife Cheryl, she has this great podcast called Women Worth Knowing. And I know it's a women's podcast, but I listen to it all the time because it has the greatest stories of faith. It's basically a history, it's a church history podcast, and it's about all these great women. But they're in a series right now of women martyrs going back to the very earliest um, centuries of the church and walking through. And um, it's just amazing, and it's so inspiring to see the courage of these women who, when um, called upon at the point of death to deny Jesus, they refused to do it, and they went to their deaths happily, courageously, 
Be courageous. Be strong. Be strong. Persevere. Don't grow weary. Be strong. You say, how, how, how do you be strong? How do you be strong in the face of, of this kind of opposition? How do you be strong in the, in the face of people being angry with you and people wanting you to, to back off on your faith? How do you be strong? You be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Know this, God will give you the strength. Ask him to strengthen you. If you feel weak, if you feel feeble, if you feel like your, your knees are about to buckle, God knows that. He wants to strengthen you. He will strengthen you. So the be strong is not so much be strong in your own strength, but be strong in the strength that God will provide. And then the final thing he says is this, do everything in love. Wow, do everything in love. So we live in an increasingly loveless world. And I don't think we have to look too far to see that, right? There's so much vitriol out in the culture today. There's so much hostility and animosity and people dividing up on sides. And love is lacking. But the biggest tragedy of the moment is not what's happening out in the culture because what can you expect from people who are dead in their sins and who are convinced that their view about everything is the only right view and they're gonna fight you to the death if you disagree with them. That's the way the world goes. The greater tragedy is that in the church, there is such a lack of love. There's such a lack of love today that today in the church, people are separating from friendships that go back decades Sometimes it's Christians who are family members who are no longer talking to each other because of ideology. The divisions in the church today, very few of them are theologically oriented. They're ideological. They're political. They're about policies and things like that. And you disagree with me and I don't like you. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Don't come to my house. Don't call me. Don't text me. I mean, this kind of stuff is happening. And how do we overcome this? Is there any hope? Well, the only hope is that we walk in love. And remember this, Jesus said that the number one evidence that we're gonna be his disciples is this. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how the world knows what we're, that we're really following Jesus, that we love each other. And love gives room for diversity. And love gives room for varying opinions. Now, most of you guys know that I'm vaccinated. Um, and I think you understand that I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad who's not vaccinated. Um, you know, that's your business. This is my conviction. 
So I was just with a whole bunch of people that are not vaccinated. And they asked me this question, why did you get vaccinated? Now, for some of them, they think that it's, all of this is government overreach, all of this is conspiracy, all of this is you know, gonna link us to the Antichrist, ultimately. I, I mean, obviously, I, I don't think that. I mean, I, the mandate thing, I, I think that's problematic. But my point is not that. My point is this. So they said to me, they asked me, so why are you vaccinated? And I said, for me, it was very simple. Very, very simple. God has called me to travel to places around the world to do his work among his people that I know I will not be allowed to do if I'm not vaccinated. So for me, it was like, you know, sign me up, give me the vaccine, because I got to go do this stuff. And when I said that to the couple people that asked me that question, one of them had been very much, very anti-vax. All of a sudden, it was like, hmm, yeah, you got a good point there. You got a good point there. Okay, yeah. Hey, we're serving God. And, and this, is, this is a part of serving God means I have to be in this place with these people, and this is going to require this. So, but the point is this, that we need to all just be able to respect one another's differences of opinion and not uh, demonize or villainize a person because they don't see it exactly the way we do. Uh, we just need to say, hey, well, if that's your conviction, praise the Lord. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the good things that God is doing. So here it is. Do everything in love. Loving each other starts right here. Loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor. That's the people around us. And this is how the world's going to know that we're following Jesus, that we love our neighbor. And in some cases, like we've pointed out over this long, long COVID thing, in some cases, loving your neighbor means uh, I'm going to put some restrictions on myself for the benefit of that person. That's, that's what loving your neighbor has looked like and probably will continue to look like. But then here is one step further, even loving our enemies. See, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, love your enemy. Love your enemy. So what does that look like? Well, I think for many, many Christians, I know this is a fact, and I'm not disagreeing with it or thinking that it's uh, beyond comprehension, but many, many people look at the current administration, people in the White House, people in government, they are the enemies of God, they're the enemies of the church, and so forth. And this all has to do, of course, with many of their policies, which are granted, many of their policies are very much against everything that God has said in his word. So as, as Christians look on, you see there, it's like, okay, those people are the enemy. What does the Bible say to do with your enemy? Love your enemy. Oh, wait, no, come on. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be angry at them. We're supposed to shout and scream. We're supposed to protest. We're supposed to tell everybody how evil they are. That's the narrative 
in much of the church today, that's not the narrative of the Bible. The Bible says love your enemy. How do you love your enemy? Well, one big way is you pray for them. Pray for them. I mean, what? I mean, let's just ask ourselves a simple question. What do you think is more effective? What, what do you think I should do as a pastor? Should I get up here Sunday after Sunday and rant and rave about the president, the vice president, the governor, whatever, you extend the list out. Should I do that? Is that gonna have an impact? Or should I say, hey, let's pray for those people. Those people need Jesus, right? The problem is they don't know Christ and they need Christ. So just simple, logical wisdom tells us that we should be praying for them. And, but not just praying for them, but not speaking evil of them. Did you know that Paul says to Titus when he's talking about governmental authorities, and I want you to remember, I've said this before, but let me remind you that the, that the emperor of Rome at the time was none other than Caesar Nero, one of the most wicked rulers in all of history. This is the backdrop for Paul saying things like, submit to them, pray for them. It's like, so, Paul says this to Titus. He says, speak evil of no one. And the context is political leaders. Speak evil of no one. And then he says this, for we ourselves were also at one time deceived. We were deceiving others. Basically, Paul says, we used to be where they are. And so don't speak evil of them. Pray for them that they might come to where we are now, that they might come to faith in Jesus. So when he says, do everything in love, this is the kind of stuff that I think obviously had its application in Corinth, but it has its application for us today. Love one another. Love your neighbor love your enemy. And now, finally, we come to the last words here. And man, verse 22 is really heavy because Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Now, Paul is the champion of the grace of God, the gospel of God's grace, but Paul never loses sight of the fact that apart from Christ, people will perish. And those who reject Christ will perish. Those who oppose Christ will perish. And so he makes this very blunt statement. Those who do not love the Lord Jesus, let them be accursed. That is the, that is the destination for those who continue to rebel against God. But then he says this. He says, come, Lord. This word is Aramaic, and it's the word Maranatha. How many have heard the word Maranatha? Well, right over there is Maranatha Christian Academy. That's the name of our, of our um, grammar school. Years ago, 
this ministry birthed another ministry called Maranatha Music. A friend of mine named Ray Bentley pastors Maranatha Chapel. So why are we using this Maranatha word? Well, Maranatha in English is come Lord. Come Lord. And Paul ends this letter reminding the saints that the hope and great longing of the church is and always will be the coming again of the Lord. That's what we long for. Now, I believe this. I believe as long as we're in the world, we should try to make it a better place. We should try to do all we can to see the kingdom expanded as far as we can in this world. That's our job as the people of God in the world. But we also know that the world will never, ever fix itself. And human beings will never, ever fix the world. You know, all the crazy talk nowadays, I mean, the climate stuff is crazy. The, the you know, we're gonna go colonize Mars. You know, all of this stuff. It's just so crazy. I was listening to somebody the other day, they're talking about like, you know, the, the, the talk is like, what if there are other people, other beings, extraterrestrial life, what, what if they're out there? Uh, and you know, the idea is earth is so screwed up, we gotta get out of here. This place, we, you know, this place is a mess. We gotta go start over somewhere else. The problem is we take ourselves with us. The people who started the problem are gonna go, what are they going to do? They're going to go start the problem on another planet. That's what they're going to do. All that to say, none of that's ever going to work. The only solution is the coming again of the Lord Jesus. The coming again of Jesus. And Jesus is going to come again. We don't know when he's going to come again, but we do know that he promised to come again. He's going to come again. I think that we can look around the world and say, well, it looks like you know things could be moving close to that. I think those people who say, uh, the Christians say, oh, that means nothing. We're, you know, life's going to go on for hundreds or thousands of years. Um, you know, Jesus did rebuke the people of his own generation for not recognizing the signs of the times. So I think we need to be wise and recognize the signs of the times, but we don't want to be foolish and overstate things and make predictions and all of that stuff that ends up just proving not to be true. So, but we want to hold just like Paul did, just like he reminded the Corinthians to do, we want to hold fast to the wonderful promise of Maranatha, come Lord, and I want to finish it with this, this word. This is Paul said this again, uh, speaking to Titus, writing to Titus. He said, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we are doing. We are waiting for the blessed hope. We're waiting for the Lord to return. And man, like Paul, come Lord, come Lord, and heal this sin-sick world. And the wonderful news is that he absolutely promised that he will do it. We believe that he will do it. 
And the final word, the grace of the Lord, Jesus Christ, be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. I think it's interesting that Paul closes it with my love to all of you. Because, you know, they might have at a certain point thought, I don't think Paul really likes us. <laughs> Sounds like he's really mad at us. But he wasn't. He loved them. And, you know, when you love people, sometimes you have to say things that are hard. But the intention is to fix what's wrong so that the goodness and blessing can go on. So, so that's, that's Paul's heart. My love to you and all in Christ. And so hopefully this has been an encouraging journey for you in everyday discipleship. I've had many people tell me that it's been a very special season of God working and speaking into their lives. So trust that that's been the case with you as well. Um, starting next week, we're gonna have... Um, Advent, five Sundays of looking at the coming of Jesus into the world as the Savior. So we're going to look forward to that time. It's going to transform everything into Christmas starting next Sunday. So we look forward to that time together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that applies your word to our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that you would bring home to us today those things that you would speak specifically to us. And Lord, may you continue your work of grace and goodness in our lives personally and among us collectively for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.